Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hi and welcome to Bat Chat. This is the podcast where we bring you the stories from the world of bat conservation. We're continuing Series 3 with a couple of guests this week. I'm Steve Rowe, a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. I've been involved in bat conservation for over two decades and in that time I've come to learn that there are some really great projects and stories out there. If you're a regular listener of the show, it's great to have you back with us. And if this is your first time in joining us, welcome along. Episodes in this series are being released every second Wednesday from now through to the spring and you can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat, that's all one word. As we meet each of our guests you'll hear from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. People who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale. As well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of bats, we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved because bats need our help. Now to start us off this week, we've got something a little bit different. During the first set of lockdowns, I came across a Twitter account belonging to James Gilbert. James was tweeting thumbnail bits of nature writing he's created, so I sent him a message asking if he'd write us something for Batchat. He was understandably a bit cautious, as a longer piece might dilute his style, but he's made a lovely piece for us. It's narrated by Morgan Brind, who recently co-hosted the BCT Batty Awards for Talented Achievement. This is Made with Echoes. At the toe of a sweeping hill slope, beneath sheep trails and terracets, alder trees stand gracefully beside gliding waters. Their conical crowns wane of fine summer detail as the dark grows. A song thrush madly sings, clear, bright notes ring out as the crescent moon creeps low across the parish skyline. Alas, this beautiful sound is short-lived. Soon, in the absence of his voice, a pipistrelle bat breaks into view against the flame-blue sky, as if the thrush's last note was her call to motion. Fast, beating wings carry her back and forth along the ribbon of alders, neatly tied to the riverine contours. She flitters beside the landward fringes that overreach into vacant pasture, just beyond the river's murmur. Shallow swoops, sudden turns, wingtips at times close to clipping branches, 
Yet she is flying a calculated path, precision made with echoes, through the stilled lee of the trees, where gnats and midges gather in dizzying numbers. Vague figures of eight are drawn in piercing these dipteran clouds, floating in the warm riparian air. Moments pass and she changes course, rising up, veering away behind a break in the canopy layer. There, she is merely glimpsed through leaf-edged interstices. A flickering shape, reminiscent of flipbook animation, then seconds later, gone. As darkness advances, the hill slope weakens in definition against the sky. A medieval church lies at the valley hill divide overlooking the river's floodplain. The clean, dark outline of its prominent tower and saddleback roof sharply contrasts with the gently curving ground. A driveway, formal and flanked by shapely lime trees, leads to the church's porch entrance, presently lamplit. A miscellany of moths flutter in the light spill. A bird-like shadow races across the loose stone. Eyes are at once drawn upwards and meet with a fast-flying bat propelled on long, pointed wings. The most fleeting impression, yet enough to discern a noctule bat making a laser-straight pass across the white glow before shrinking into the almost black as the church bells chime nine. That was Made With Echoes by James Gilbert. A huge thanks to James for creating that beautiful piece, which conjures up some really strong imagery and describes the fleeting glimpses and the action of bats well, something that can be hard to capture in words. You can find lots more of James's work on his Twitter account. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got a piece of writing or poetry that you'd like to share with us, drop us an email to the address in the show notes and you never know, it might be featured on a future episode. Now, back in August, I was invited to RHS Wisley as part of their Hilltop Live series, along with Shirley Thompson, who features in our first ever episode of Bat Chat, and Bat Conservation Trust staff. We gave a talk to members of the public who were visiting that day in the new Hilltop building, which is the RHS home of gardening science. Whilst we were there for the day, I managed to speak to our next guest, who is Dr Andrew Salisbury, the principal entomologist for the RHS, and I had no idea that the RHS even had entomologists. As you'll hear in this interview, we're sat outside the Hilltop building in the Wildlife Garden, so I asked Andrew to introduce himself and tell us why the RHS have experts like himself. Okay, I'm uh, Andy Salisbury, um, Principal Entomologist is, is the title I have these days. Uh, I'm part of uh, what's known as the Plant House team for the RHS and we're here to provide uh, essentially advice and research on um, garden insects and other animal life really. So it's not actually just entomology, uh, there are honorary insects that come in there as well, so things like the wood lice and the, the millipedes and centipedes and the spiders are all part of our work as well. Uh, but occasionally we talk about deer, uh, mammals, bats even on the, on the odd occasion. Um, and we're providing advice on uh, 
more and more about encouraging wildlife and the biodiversity that gardens support but we are there also to provide advice and things that, that people don't really want in their gardens too so, so we do talk about slugs and lily beetle and things like that as well and like i said i've never been here before and it's a really large site i was warned by your colleague helen when i came she was like you'll never walk around it all in a day how long has the site been here uh, the RHS took on the site in 1904, so, so the, the RHS had RHS Wizzy for over 100 years. Uh, but it was a garden before then, and it was actually that's when it was donated to the society. Okay, and we're now sat, well we're sat next to what is called the Hilltop Building, which is literally brand new, and there are members of the public walking around in what is your quite literally brand new wildlife garden. How come... It's brand new, and why has it only just been created? Well, the RHS has always had a science base, and we did have uh, what is known as the laboratory building, which was built throughout the, the First World War, uh, and that has served its purpose. The RHS has, has, has a big science remit. It's, it's, it is part of the RHS's uh, purpose, um, and um, we needed new facilities. You know, a 100-year-old lab building uh, had served its purpose, and our research over the past 10, 20 years, really has picked up. Uh, we need a new building. So uh, Hilltop was built. It houses the RHS collections, the herbarium, the entomology collections, the insect collection. It has brand new labs where we can carry out research into um, not just those things which uh, affect garden plants in a bad way, but also the, the benefits of gardens for biodiversity, uh, well-being, um, and even sort of climate change mitigation, that sort of thing. So there's lots of research going on there. And to surround it, of course, to surround any new building at the RHS, we have to have gardens. So we're sat in the wildlife garden at the moment, one of the new gardens, but there is also a, a well-being garden and a world food garden as well. And the wildlife garden here is, like I say, it's just been created and there's all sorts of different plants. And even though some of the stuff's only gone in the last couple of months, there's loads of stuff in flower here. How much time have you spent planning this particular garden? How much, how much time and planning has gone into creating this? Uh, there, there, were, there were many years. I mean, it's, it's the, the garden is designed by a well-known garden designer, Anne-Marie Powell. Uh, and she took inspiration from IRHS's own research, where we a few years ago we did uh, carry out a big research program called Plants for Bugs, where we were looking at whether it's really native plants that, that are best for wildlife and gardens. Uh, and it was a field design with sort of native plants, northern hemisphere plants, which are closely related to native garden plants, and some purely exotic southern hemisphere plants. Uh, and we found that, well, yes, natives were slightly better, but um, the, the near-native northern hemisphere plants were also really good for, in, for invertebrates and, and other wildlife, as were um, the exotic plants also had their value as well, such as flowering later or providing winter cover. So gardens sort of built on that knowledge and so it's not purely uh, native plants there are a few uh, non-native plants in here to, to add that as flower. but yeah i mean many years went into the planning of this building we're sat next to a shed with a green roof on it and there's a line of pine trees behind us for listeners at home just sort of describe the sort of different habitats we've got around here then well there are sort of the, the traditional garden border um and garden hedgerows and you know, they're, they're also important there is a lot of water of varying different types from a small garden pond to um, a very large pond. Uh, water being, we know, is incredibly important, one of the best ways of quickly introducing a new habitat to your garden. 
and literally within days of filling the ponds or, or hours actually we we had um, water boatmen and pond skaters coming in and on a, on a sunny day this summer we've already had about three or four species of dragonfly and damselfly come in and i've already seen larvae in the ponds and the ponds were only filled this time last year so it's you know less than a year we've already got larvae in there and I mean, there's a couple of really nice sculptures and I can see there's a there's sort of an insect house where there's loads of bits of deadwood and pine cones in there. This little wildlife pond next to us, we've got a, a log pile. So I guess you've sort of had some influence in terms of bringing the insects in. We, we have. I mean, there was the, you know, the planting itself is, is just one thing. But yes, the, the log piles, the uh, habitat tower, as, as, as it's known, there's also a bird hide where people can watch. Uh, and there's, there's lots of information. We have areas of long grass and areas of shorter grass. Um, they've recently just mown one of the areas of long grass. Um, so, yeah, lots of different habitats here in log piles, the compost heaps. We're also monitoring the, the moths on site. We have what's a Rothamstead insect um, uh, light trap uh, on site. Um, and there's uh, somewhere where people can... Uh, there's, there's a bird hide as well. And if, for people at home who are listening, if they want to create a space in their garden... To encourage wildlife what would you say the, the one or two things that you would do if you wanted to encourage wildlife to your garden i mean the first thing i have to say is, is, is it's not actually about an individual space gardens are great for wildlife they are already absolutely fantastic for wildlife and the best piece of advice there is uh, i always give is put more plants in that's it more plants uh, but when you get into, into specifics flowering plants we have lists of and there are lists on various websites but the rhs has its plants for pollinators list uh, our own research said the more flowers you get surprisingly the more pollinators you get um, the more plants you have the more invertebrates you, you have um, gets longer season uh, so plants that are flowering throughout the year there are winter winter pollinators out there if you've got space to add water be it a, from a water bath right way through to a large pond they all provide value um, log piles if you can get them in uh, but yes as i say overall get some plants in the more plants the better and i mean one of the apart from doing this podcast here today one of the reasons we're here is i'm here with the bat conservation trust and we're doing a talk um, for members of the public we've put out a bat detector we've posted down a, a static recording bat detector which we've put up in the bird hides and we've gone through those recordings and i've only spent 10 minutes going through and we've already picked up five bat species how many different species of insects have you got here at, at wisley it's very difficult off the top of your head off the top of my head it's very difficult so we we have actually got records going back of the um, insects on site going back to 1889 so that's you know that's that's good 15 years before the RHS took on the gar and we found some old records but I mean it, it is uh, it is going to be in the, in the thousands of species um, and you know just gardens as a whole you just need to look at some of the research that's gone out there you can go back to Jennifer Owen's book on where she studied her Leicester garden for 30 years and she recorded two or three thousand species of invertebrates in the small Leicester garden. We've got over 200 acres here at Wisley, so it, it, it's huge the number of species we're going to have. Um, the moth trap, the Rothschild insect trap um, that we have here, has recorded over 600 species of larger moths since it's been on site in the early 70s. We have uh, things like uh, behind us in the wildlife garden, there are some standing dead pines. And in one of those pines is the only known site in Britain for a uh, longhorn beetle, um, the house longhorn beetle. It's not known to be, uh, to be breeding in anywhere else in, in Britain. It may occur in other trees in the locality, but that is the only known tree here in the wildlife garden. And do you think that's because this is the only site, or is it just because insects are one of those genus or uh, groups of, of 
the fauna out there that are so understudied? I, th- I think it's a bit of a mixture. I, I think the, the beetle I'm talking about is it's quite a large beetle. It is quite noticeable. It has been recorded in the area for a, a long time, but nobody's really found its breeding sites. So the only one we know it is continually breeding is that tree. But I know there are other good candidate trees in the area on the local commons as well. Um, but uh, Wisley also has some amazing uh, creatures. There's uh, something called the uh, wood cricket, which is a rare insect in Britain. It's, it's basically known from the New Forest, uh, some woodlands and forests on the Isle of Wight, and here at Wisley <laughs> and uh, the surrounding commons. Um, how it got here, we don't really know. There are rumours about it coming in with nursery stock at some point nearly 100 years ago, but uh, it, it just goes to show that you know, gardens can support um, some interesting and, and, and uh, wild creatures. And you mentioned some of the extensive research that you guys have done here. Well, how does that research compare to other institutions like Kew, for example? What, what is it that you guys do that's different to them, for example? Well, the RHS is, is very much focused on ornamental plants and gardening. So it's, it's, it's very much focused on um, the, the gardening public and, and how green spaces, private green spaces or uh, managed green spaces in parks, etc., can actually benefit us in the many ways that they do so not just for the biodiversity but also as I say for, for, for well-being uh, for climate change mitigation pollution control these these are benefits that our gardens have um, and we are focused on the gardener and have you seen a, a change in trend over the years of, of the general public do you find that there is resistance to encourage wildlife or is that something you, that you've seen change and people actually now far more likely to encourage or is it still a bit of a, a marmite thing where type people either love it or they hate it i mean it must be but there are still people out there who who go in and if it moves in their garden if it's an animal in the garden they they don't want it there and we do we do get a bit of that but to be honest i'm, I'm really pleased to say we we we, ha- we are seeing a change out there um or i think we're seeing a change out there. it's difficult to put actual um uh, actually quantify it but I really do get the feeling people are beginning to realise their gardens are great for biodiversity. They are great green spaces. The things that come and nibble their plants are part of that. Uh, and we, we are see, seeing more, of, more and more of that. I'm, I'm sure we are. And uh, at the RHS, we, we're encouraging that. I, mean, I must say, we are, we are encouraging. Just um, We have research projects going on to slugs, showing that they're not all bad. Uh, you know, slugs and snails do damage plants. Some of them do, do eat plants, but... A lot of them just don't. They actually feed on decomposing organic matter. So even at that level, we're trying to convince people now that you know, accepting a bit of damage to their plants uh, is, is part of the biodiversity that gardens can support. And if listeners at home are thinking, oh, this sounds great, I want to come and visit RHS Wisley, when would you say is the best time of year to come? Or is there always something to see? <laughs> I, I, th- I think I'm almost contractually about to say there is always something to see, always something to see at, uh, at, at the RHS. I mean... Um, even on, even on a terrible rainy day these days, um, Wisley looks great. I've, I've, you know, I, I come here. I get to come to Wisley at least three times a week. Uh, every day it's different. Every time it's lovely. It could be absolutely chucking it down with rain and a cold November day, and the site still looks great. Um, obviously, it's more pleasant to walk around on a lovely, lovely sunny day. But any time of year is good. There are, there are sculptures. There's there's winter greenery. There are things in flower in winter. Uh, and to, to escape the showers these days, there is other displays inside the hilltop as well, which is another advantage of this new building. There are actually displays and things you can come inside and see as well. I was going to say, going inside, certainly the, the ground floor where, where we're going to be doing the talk later, there's, there's a green wall, there's loads of displays, 
jars full of all the different types of seeds. What sort of talks and events do you put on in that in that space? I, there's, there's all sorts of events. There, there, are, there is something uh, called Hilltop Live that we're, we're running now, um, and there are talks every day, twice a day, uh, and there are a range of subjects, everything from how to prune an apple tree, right the way through to I've given talks on the best things to do for, uh, or I've given a talk called Invisible Gardens, Havens for Wildlife, just exciting the virtues of, of how good gardens are for wildlife. Uh, and then we're getting guest speakers in as well. So um, um, uh, this week, as, as part of the uh, Bat Fest, we do have um, you guys from the Bat Conservation coming in to talk, give a talk on bats. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, and so I mean, there, there are a constant round of events every day for, for people to see and listen to as well. Great stuff. Dr. Andrew Salisbury, thank you very much. Thank you. A big thanks to Andrew for coming on the show and to all the staff involved in the Hilltop Live series. We had a brilliant time down there. That's almost it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find all sorts of links to our guests' social media pages, all sorts of gardening advice from the RHS and our own advice on how to garden for bats. As you'll hopefully now know, we're running Bat Chat's first ever competition during this series. Children's authors Emma Reynolds and Angela Mills have kindly donated copies of their books about bats. Angela has donated a copy of Bobby the Brown on Geared Bats, signed by both Angela and Chris Packham, and Emma has donated a copy of her newly released book, Amara and the Bats. To enter the competition to win one of these brilliant books, all you have to do is write us a review about this podcast, Bat Chat, and the two winners will be picked at random at the end of this series. Not all podcast apps allow you to leave reviews, so you can find instructions in the show notes of this episode, and please note that we're only able to post the prizes to addresses in the United Kingdom. Thank you if you're one of those who has left us a review. We really do enjoy reading the comments you leave us. The series continues in two weeks' time, so hit that follow button so that you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. Now lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to Bat Chat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow Bat Chat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.